Hey folks, before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to let you know that this was a big long discussion that Orlean and I had. This ended up being a two hour discussion, so I decided to break this up into two roughly one hour segments. So the first part of this episode will be going over the author, Carol J. Clover, the introduction to the book, and the first parts of chapter one, in which we end, I ended this discussion on right before we got into the victim subsection. So in a couple of days, so I think on Friday or Saturday this week, you will see part two of this, which will be the victims and final girls discussion, among some other things that the rest of the book talked about. So enjoy this and i also want to say thank you to jasher cleveland james and tiffany for joining the patreon and because of you guys and the awesome folks over at horror press with all the help i am looking to like kind of upgrading my mic a little bit so hopefully we'll have some better sounding stuff in just a couple of weeks but uh shout out to horror press i they had this really awesome article on crawl it was this i think it's kind of like a hidden gem of a creature feature it's the sam raimi production he wasn't the filmmaker behind it, but it's this pretty rad alligator creature feature. I feel like people should go check out. It's a lot of fun. And it's real quick. It's only like 80, 90 minutes. So go check out Crawl. Go check out Horror Press. And check out the Patreon at patreon.com slash And with all that said, let's go ahead and get into the episode. Enjoy it. Welcome back to Autopsy of a Horror Movie. My name is Brucker, and today I am joined by Orlean of the podcast Spooky and Strange to discuss Men, Women, and Chainsaws, Gender in the Modern Horror Film, a very interesting film essay by Carol J. Clover. We will be discussing the intro in chapter one of this book, but hello, Orlean. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Hey, Brucker. Thanks for having me. We have quite the interesting topic today, so... (laughs) If people are not familiar with this book, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, Gender in the Modern Horror Film, this is a film essay written by Carol J. Clover, and this is kind of a deconstruction and examination of the slasher subgenre, and specifically, this is kind of also looking into how just gender, the gender roles in film and how it's portrayed, how audiences identify with certain characters, and this is also the essay that coined the term Final Girl. So I want to give a content warning up front that these academics get into lots of discussions about sex. There's a lot of um, phallic imagery that they bring up. So if there are little ones listening, use earbuds because these get into pretty explicit details for some of that. I just want to give a content warning. So we're talking about chapter one today, which is titled. But before we get into that, we're kind of going to have a general conversation about the, the first half, the first part of this book, the intro in chapter one. These are very dense chapters. There is 60 pages of very heavy text and citing lots of references and film examples. Um, So that's why we're doing one chapter at a time. And we won't be able to cover every single cool nuanced thought that she has because we would be here for several hours because it is a dense text. But Orlean, (laughs) thank you for coming on. And what, what did you think so far of the intro chapter one of this book? Well, great introduction. And I'll also say the footnotes here are epic. (laughs) Like you could spend so much time just following up sources and references that she makes in these intro and first chapter. 
Um, and I tried not to go down too many rabbit holes. <laughs> Before we get into the introduction and chapter of this, uh, I kind of want to introduce who the author of this book of this book is. So her name is Carol J. Clover, and this book was published in '92 and focuses heavily on slasher movies of the 70s and 80s with some references to the 60s as well. So Carol J. Clover, she is an American professor of medieval studies and American film at the University of California, Berkeley. Um, She likes to study Scandinavian literature and culture um, and has an emphasis on film and theory, emphasizing both on medieval and film fields from like a social historical aspect, especially looking into sex and gender in them. Um, she has several very impressive accolades. She, she did her undergrad and graduate studies at the University, University of California, Berkeley. She had a fellowship at the Uppsala, Uppsala University in Sweden. And from my experiences with other professors that have done fellowships at Sweden, that means you're very smart. She was also an assistant professor at Harvard University before returning to Berkeley. And there she does still... Uh, she does currently still do writings and researching while at Berkeley, but I don't believe she teaches is kind of more of a kind of like a semi-retired title where like she kind of works with them and UC Berkeley gets the credit for having one of their um, faculty members to publish these things. But I don't oh. think she still teaches film in Scandinavian studies classes. But um, so a little introduction. So she is an academic. She has lots of accolades and meaning these academics, how they write. In, just because I, uh, you know, I went to grad school and everything, I, it, it's a very interesting and unique way of writing and presenting your arguments with, and you're kind of beating a dead horse as we will kind of get into with this. But, um, so yeah, so th- th- like I said, this is a dense, dense section. Each chapter is like over sixty pages. So, Orlean, without further ado, let's get into the introduction of this. I started with the introduction because I had no real basis for starting this book and I didn't want to start right into chapter one. Um, So I started in the intro where the author basically lays out some of the arguments that she's going to focus on in the later chapters. And she starts out by talking about the movie Carrie. And I find it so interesting that she opens with this because she starts right away with a a very feminine heavy story feminine heavy movie but written by a man directed by a man and interestingly beloved by male viewers of the 70s horror time yeah it, it it's a very good example of several arguments that she makes in this and there's lots of confusing terms that will be thrown at people during this talk, um, she it, it, it's, a, it's a very good kind of like galvanizing example of the the points that she makes of evidence throughout the rest of the text. So this intro is kind of like a good way to sort of, as you're kind of explaining before we hopped on here about how she is sort of um, letting you know what her thought process is and some of the things that she, that she is going to be bringing up in this. And uh, what you kind of just explained is, we'll get to it when we get there, but a very cool example of that, that cross-gender identification that she gets into later on in this, which is very deep in the weeds of, of things, but it's fascinating to think about. It is. And even in the intro, I started writing down questions like, 
why did Stephen King write Carrie about a girl and not a bullied teenage boy? Why open on periods? Why the pig's blood? What is the blood motif in general? Again, coming from like a, a male perspective on horror. And the biggest question as I was reading this, I was wondering, do we think that King understands the gender roles at play in the story when he's writing it in 1973? See, that that's really interesting to think about. And I, I don't have like a real answer for that, to be honest. And it's it's fascinating the things that she gets into about this. And I think a term that people kind of should, should kind of be aware of going into this because of the heavy themes is the, the male gaze theory. And what you, it's kind of exactly what you just described. This was a theory developed by Laura Mulvey in 1975. And it's kind of like what you just said. It's that theory of that, Cinema and a lot of media things are, since they are produced by men, mostly tar- trying to target a male audience that the men and women characters in these movies and books are depicted in a way that a man would kind of like. <laughs> and there's lots of reasons of things like where that stems from. And I really like how she kind of gets into like how pornography has instilled a cinematic language of how the camera already knows of how to frame and shoot the female body but there really isn't one for men and in case people are still confused about what the male gaze theory is here's a really good example that i like to give people that isn't necessarily horror related but i want you to think of margot robbie's character of harley quinn in the suicide squad in birds of prey suicide squad this was directed by a man directed by david ayers and in that book and in that movie uh margot robbie is her character is dripping in sexuality the camera hugs her butt hugs her chest in it she is dressed extremely differently from the rest of the cast especially her male counterparts in it we even get like a couple strip teases with her in it there are scenes where she is licking phallic objects in it it's in it and it's weird. And the reason why this kind of is a good example of male gaze theory is because there's nobody else in the movie that does this. No other male character is doing anything as overtly sexual or sexualized in it. Now, take the same actress, the same character of Harley Quinn, played by Margot Robbie, in Birds of Prey, which is a phenomenal movie. And this is directed by a woman, Kathy Ann. And in that, the camera does not hug her features. And she is shot much like an action hero, like how we see men are in these superhero action movies and it's it works it's super good and so the and she's also not dressed (laughs) like how she is in suicide squad so and again this isn't necessarily like an attack on men or male directors or anything like that so don't take it that way think of it as this is like a very interesting thought experiment and just because the male gaze may exist in certain movies you like or books or whatever, it doesn't necessarily mean it's bad <laughs> or it, it, it can be in bad taste in some, like some cases. But um, it's I th- kind of think of it as more of like an interesting thought experiment. And sometimes it is bad, but um, it doesn't necessarily mean that somebody is mean or evil or misogynistic. And again, we've had almost 100 years of cinema. So a lot of people kind of already been trained for this to be the default. Yeah, I would say that's why we're talking about it and that's why it's important to bring up here. Not that it's something that like we should never see or that directors should never use. It's that it it is the assumed neutral 
And as Clover says in her introduction, the cinematic gaze is not gender free, is not gender free. And she even takes us through the types of ways we identify with either the camera or the characters and how that is part of the overall design of the story. Yes. And I think a lot of it is also subconscious of how it's done. And I I do have like some, I don't buy every single thing she says. I think because I don't think everything she says in here is like a hard, fast rule of Mm -hmm. every time this happens, this is what it means, especially when she gets into POV equals identification. I don't necessarily always agree with that, but um, but it is this is just I think a very just cool way to study and examine slashers and horror in general. And it, it's, it's like I said, it's a fun, and I think, interesting thought experiment to kind of look into the subtext and nuance of these things. And what is it saying about the audience, the characters and just like what's the reflection of gender at the time that these things were made and how has it evolved? in horror and that's something you and i were talking about before i hopped on is that you know have how much of these rules and claims that she has in here how how much are they still in cinema today and so this this could be a very fun discussion (laughs) yeah i agree and even as she is saying these things laying out these arguments and hypotheses and beliefs she also says in the intro this is a field in which there is no original no right or real version Because horror, like mythology, like folklore, is told and retold. There are oral traditions. There are stories that get passed down and changed over time to fit the societies in which, you know, they're being read or watched um, or understood. And she says specifically that horror is at once the personal dreams of their makers and the collective dreams of their audiences. Ooh, I love that. That's so cool. (laughs) Yeah, it's just, it's very true because, and maybe we could make this argument for all genres in a certain way, but because horror gets at nightmares and core anxieties and beliefs about the world and like who we are and our trust of other people, I feel like that's where it gets really sticky with like everything else we've ever learned about the world. Mm -hmm. And using horror as a lens through which to see the things we think we understand. And on that note, one thing she posits in the introduction is that in the 70s, the women's liberation movement provided horror with this new image of this angry woman, so angry she too can perpetrate violence against other people. And it made me wonder, is that image new? And in what ways is she framing it now? Because the first story I thought of was Medea by Euripides, which we can call a classic, we can call mythology, but it's really a horror story. I'm I'm actually unfamiliar, so could you kind of just walk me through that? Absolutely. So Medea ends up married to Jason of the Argonauts and the Golden Fleece quest. She helps him complete his quest They end up getting married and running away together. That's how the first story ends. Okay. (laughs) In Medea, we open on they have two kids and Jason is leaving her for another woman. And it destroys her life, throws everything into chaos. And she murders their children, murders the other woman and the other woman's father. 
Whoa. Arguably, this is like a slasher myth. Hmm. But I wonder about specifically, Medea is not a victim hero. She's more like a hero victim monster. And it's kind of the reverse of the movies we're talking about. Interesting. And that, and it kind of gets into like the, how like the, the villain character is, um, cause, cause it, it, it's a, it's a cool blend of that. Cause she gets into how the, I don't know if I actually, I don't know if I want to say it yet. But okay. How she, she, yeah, no, no. The, that theme of villains and quote final girls where, you know, like the protagonist having mm-hmm. some sort of, um, uh, like duality of, genders and like which percentage is more or whatever kind of defines if, if they're the villain or the protagonist mm-hmm. in it but I, I love how like that theme is kind of already there from like the, this old myth that you're talking about yeah I, I instantly thought of this story because what if she what is she if not a villain but maybe we've just framed it that way through dramatic literature if we look at it through slasher horror and gender anxiety and fears this is mm-hmm. a mother losing her family, losing her identity, and take like becoming a family annihilator slash slasher villain. And that's also like funny to think of, or inter- just again thought experiment. Fun to think about how we kind of see as women being you know these these motherly figures bringing in a family, and how her most evil thing that she could do is take away the family. In that, yeah, and that is a horror story. That is like a modern horror story. But then as there's one thing that Clover ends the introduction with, and that is this idea of the fantasy of withstanding enormous amounts of pain tied Mm. into the slasher hero. So it's not just your life fell apart, you endured physical anguish, bullying, all of that. It's that there is also like this enormous physicality to it. Yes, yes, yeah. The suffering is absolutely part of it, and it's, and she she kind of gets into that with how the the suffering part is that gateway from childhood to adulthood, but it's um, mm-hmm. symbolized with the final girl earning her phallus, and that adult a phallus is re- is required for adulthood in these, and that what makes them not a feeble child anymore, but a stronger person that can conquer the the things that they need to and it's it's so weird (laughs) but it's so interesting to think about that because really what it sounds like it's setting up is that the final girl has a choice to make about the type of adult to become Mm. right like there's there's some kind of if if this is the fork in the road and that the final girl often takes the quote-unquote more masculine road what of childbirth what of like the pain and terror of pregnancy like that is the other road here that i feel like the final girl never goes down that that is that is interesting to think about i've never really thought about it that way because that is what i think about when i think about like withstanding enormous physical pain over a period of time and like dealing with trials and like body anguish Yeah. yeah but like in these movies, instead, the final girl goes the route of, again, quote-unquote, masculine decision 
taking out the final villain and like earning their malehood. <laughs> <laughs> it is, uh, yeah. Is it, we're definitely going to get into that. Uh, I forget which section. Maybe it's the body section. I can't remember which was a dense part of this essay. <laughs> um, so each, th- thank you, Orlean, for kind of covering the introduction. I, uh, I, I kind of skimmed over the intro just because, as you kind of stated, it's her kind of explaining her thought process and everything for the rest of the essay and i kind of already knew what i was getting into and this felt okay. more like it just kind of felt like an abstract more than i don't know anything kind of i don't know new to the table for me i was like eh, i don't mm-hmm. i don't want to read the summary i want to get into it so um but thank you for kind of walking us through the introduction for that so uh, unless there was anything else that you wanted to bring up before getting into chapter one no let's jump in Okay, so chapter one is titled Her Body Himself. And these chapters are, like I said, they're very dense or like somewhat 60 pages or longer. And these are basically essays on their own. So what this first chapter is really doing is doing more of an examination of the slasher film and its components and arguing how the slasher movie uh, warrants merit of studying. And she she spends a lot of this kind of just deconstructing what a slasher movie is, its components, how it could be looked at and studied, and then presenting her hypotheses of like what these movies are actually saying about gender. So she spends the first part of this discussion, as I said, talking about how other cinema uh, scholars have kind of put slashers at the bottom of the heap and that they don't really see any sort of worthy of looking into these. And she even cites about how some trash cinema commenters don't even bother with slashers. And so she is, again, spending a lot of time saying how these movies do merit being studied. And she supports this by saying that there is an obvious box office success for most of these slashers. And if you look at the sequels themselves, that there are that that, that kind of just merits like, hey, there's something here because people want more of it. And this this book came out in 92. So it was kind of funny to to see like where we were with the certain franchises that she talked about because now because she she cites texas chainsaw a nightmare on elm street halloween friday the 13th which we've all have gone several sequels it's since. gone so many now it's so many so it was kind of cool to, i think she said that halloween's only at four or five sequels by this point it's like oh no like like, like oh honey there's so much more to come so she kind of merits the just you know like hey let's look at this since there is some sort of like audience success with this. Like, what are they getting out of this? And she she also goes into saying that the slashers kind of owe a lot of credit to Alfred Hitchcock's 1960s movie, Psycho. And she states that there's lots of things grandfathered or grandmothered down, depending on how you want to look at it, from Psycho to the modern slasher. She's able to basically break up the slasher into five elements, which are killer, location, or how she calls it, terrible place, weapons, victims, and final girl is a subcategory of victims, and finally shock. So we're going to be looking at these sections as we're going through the chapter. Um is there anything here do you feel like I missed? Before we get into each of those sections, she lays out that her premise is that the slasher film gives us a clearer picture of current sexual attitudes 
at least among its target audience. Remember, mostly young men, although couples, young women, everyone women in groups. Them. She said women yeah. in groups. Um, but it's so interesting to have that laid out as we go into these. So it also made me think, and we'll have to get into this discussion later about the Fear Street movies that came out on Netflix last summer and how utterly sexless they were and how that actually does seem to tie in with this various like anecdata that we see around Gen Z having less sex. Hmm. But they haven't killed the slasher. They've just taken some sex out of it. I actually didn't know that about like that that data on Gen Z. That's why I think we'll have to talk about it more because mm-hmm. I think like to her point, an entire generation has passed since she wrote this book. Mm-hmm. And that means there is an entirely new look at sexual attitudes among young people, um, sexual mores, standards, how people feel about things, the the tie between horror and sexuality. Like there's so much there to get into. It, it's really exciting. And I think I wish she were writing an updated version now. <laughs> I, I would love some sort of follow-up to this. She's 81 right now. So oh, I would... maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> so I I hope that we get some sort of update on this before, you know, her, her time on this planet is uh, up. But um, um, maybe okay, not. Yeah, yeah no, um, I definitely, I, definitely looking into how all these things have evolved. So, I mean, just looking, I mean, how do you feel about the elements that she broke this up into? Killer, location, weapons, victim, and shock like do you feel like that there was anything that should have been added or like how how do you just feel about these components that she broke the slasher up into i think they make sense as a first framework for looking Mm. at this but i think um you know she says it's worth noting that the killers are normally the fixed elements and the victims the interchangeable ones but that's Mm -hmm. not at all how i would categorize quote-unquote modern horror in 2022 I don't know, because, well, I don't know. See, see that's interesting, because we, we still don't have too many new original IP coming out, and we're still kind of stuck in these, like, franchises. Like, like we still just got, like, a, we just got a fifth Scream movie. Right, but the point of the movie is the victims, not the killer. That's kind of what I mean. Like, the victims are no longer interchangeable to us, because mm. for whatever reasons, and I have a couple written down, and I bet... Carol has a few as well. Like, for whatever reason, we have grown to more tightly identify with the victims than the killers. And so I don't think her sections are wrong, but I think they've evolved. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And definitely how you said, like, the the context of when this was written, you know, in in the late, or I'm sorry, early 90s, she probably, I think she said she started writing this in 85. Oh, um, geez. Okay. So, yeah, yeah, we're coming at this from... uh, again a generation removed yeah exactly and you're right though because you know in the 70s and 80s and heck even 90s in some cases today um but it has evolved the people kept coming back to these movies because they want to watch their slasher stars like michael myers jason Voorhees, right. freddy krueger and it's it's funny because it's still that was still the trend from the 1920s 30s and 40s universal monster movies people wanted to watch frankenstein they wanted to watch dracula they wanted to watch the wolfman go back into these things and they wanted to watch them cross paths because so many those movies it's weird because like 
the framework for Marvel can kind of go back to the, the Universal Monster movies because there was a lot of crossover in those. Um, but yeah, and as you said, like Scream was probably the not the best example I could have brought up to argue for the villain part of that. Sure. But you're right. <laughs> but no, you're right on how that's evolved. And that's something you and I were talking about is that we kind of wish that she possibly could have waited four more years for Scream <laughs> yeah. to come out because so many of these things are updated in Scream. And how you said, like the Scream franchise, people do go back for Sydney and Dewey and Gale. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they were the legacy cast members for the fifth movie. That's why so many people want to go see it. But at the same time, I think, you know, audiences could have really jumped on to Stu and said, he's not dead. He's going to be the one we want to follow, you mm-hmm. know? And, and they kind of did. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I wonder she focuses through the lens of sexuality sexuality and gender but i also wonder does the change we see in slashers and the representation also signal changes in how we see gender dysphoria gender confusion i think that's kind of like a good segue to get into the killer subsection of this because she really gets into how you're kind of stating that most of these villains these killers are men um, and that there seems to be some sort of psychosexual theory motivator in them. And they all have some sort of like broken family complex um, and, and, or some sort of like gender dysphoria as well. So there's some lots of good examples for like the gender dysphoria and sexual fury complex. Uh, she cites Norman Bates, Leatherface, Buffalo Bill. And I think one that was missing that should have been added in here was Angela from Sleepaway Camp is really mm. good in this now i know you're not familiar with sleepaway camp and nope. we you agree the spoilers before we talked about this so if people don't want to know about sleepaway camp i guess skip a few minutes, seconds but angela is a adolescent teen like, i think she's like i don't know like 13 14 something like that and the twist she is the killer in the movie but the twist at the end is that she is actually a boy and when she was very young her parents died and was adopted by her aunt and her aunt always wanted a daughter. So she made her nephew become her niece and raised her as a girl, him as a girl. I'm sorry. I, the pronouns were so confusing for that movie. But um, so, and that was kind of like the, the shocking part ending of that. And I'm going to be using sleepaway camp a lot throughout discussion because there's so many cool examples of what she talks about. I guess let's just kind of start with the psychosexual theory as like, a motivator in this um where would you like to begin (laughs) oh this book goes so so heavy into gender theories and i have never studied gender theory at a a university level so i'm coming at this totally new (laughs) okay (laughs) i mean i think there are things like in the popular culture that i've certainly heard of or read about but coming at the idea of like a one sex philosophy two sex philosophy like when are we seeing something as more feminine when are we seeing something as more masculine it's a little confusing it is it, it it's very confusing and it's also i don't know so she kind of cites like like how like sex equals death in a lot of these and that's kind of where she's pulling like uh, supporting evidence for this psychosexual fury um that she has and she's she talks a lot about norman bates in this from psycho and how he has like you know the split personality he has the mom side and the norman side and 
I think she she like kind of goes into how he is like maybe like sexually attractive to uh, like uh, Janet Lee's character mm-hmm. in it, and it's the mother side of it that's like no like no Norman, uh, that's bad. So he eliminates that. I don't, but I don't, there's so much more. Yeah. There's so much more to that. I think that we can dig into. Like, is it really just about no to sex? Or is there something more complex there? Is there something... I mean, we can get into, I think, levels of victims here to just categorize mm-hmm. him as the killer. There, I think she comes back to this idea that like there is something simplistic about the slasher. As much as there is this like complexity and philosophy, like there is something simplistic about the idea of the slasher. Mm-hmm. And it's so hard to think of it in these simple terms, like the killer when Norman Bates is a tortured figure. (laughs) I don't know. And I, there is also an element to this that makes me remember people saying like, well, if you treat a boy like a girl who grow up gay, like that's almost what this psychosexual stuff reminds me of. Mm. of this very like facile approach like well if if a man if a man is exposed to too much femininity or too many women it like changes his brain (laughs) yeah and it's like and it's also interesting about how like it's the male to female that's that they they kind of always have that example and how that's always well that's the the villain yeah that's That's the villain part of it is the man to or male to female part of it where right like as she mm-hmm. talks about the gender confusion, I find myself even asking, like, are these characters confused or are they just not aligning to what the people around them expect? The people mm. around them are confused. Interesting. I don't know that Norman Bates is confused. I don't know that um, anyone in Texas Chainsaw is confused. <laughs> I think though that like leather, uh, so she t- she does talk about how the the thing that's similar between the killer and the final girl is that is that sexual repression, mm-hmm. and that the the final girl she describes you know being virginal and a lot of people have identified that and that these killers are not virginal but in, in a similar light you know they do have that sexual repression, and I think that Leatherface was a very interesting example. Yeah, she brought up in this because she talks a lot about Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part Two, mm-hmm. and there's that infamous scene with Stretch in that movie, um, with with Leatherface's chainsaw blade and her crotch, um, and she I think she cites it as the crotch episode or the crotch scene several times through this, but it, it's interesting to look at because it it kind of does kind of make you think that there is some sort of sexual repression because Leatherface does kind of seem to be developmental mentally developed mm-hmm. delayed developmentally thank you thank you delayed you said it and um but so he's like this adult but you know he's uh mentally delayed and he in, uh, which isn't too far to say that he's sexually delayed as well and so in this scene where the sexual psychosexual fury kind of really uh, comes to a head and presents himself it's and it's also just weird what it's saying about like women in this too is that uh, so leatherface's blade is between her legs and she is really egging him on during this scene 
and the the chainsaw is even shot in a very phallic way besides just the shape of it it's shot in a phallic way to where like we see it at like his waist level and everything and she is pleading for her life um and she is really egging him on and she's saying things that like you kind of like would say in bed things like i like i bet you're really good at it are you good i bet you're good things like that and as she's egging him on the chainsaw which is not running is going further up her leg and it reaches her crotch and he the 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 blade touches her and she she says things like you're really good you're the best and this causes him to climax and but then leatherface then changes and instead of trying to kill stretch throughout the movie he tries to hide her and save her from his family throughout the rest because this happens like in the first act of the movie so you know okay so the rest of the movies leatherface is actually now trying to kind of protect and hide stretch from his family and it's weird because it's like that psychosexual fury like once he kind of got through that threshold he no longer sees her as just like an animal for slaughter it's almost as if because she provided sex that elevated her in some way for him and that she's now worthy of saving which is kind of like different well, from like not just sex and, but also yeah. the like support emotional support when it came to sex oh that's true yeah because because of all the the, the fellow doctors yeah. he was giving him. and like yeah to someone who has never in any way like had sexual experiences as that character like that's the that's probably the best or nicest anyone has ever been to him and then to tie it into sex as well mm-hmm it, it, but it's just it's interesting that um, I, the thing that I found like most interesting about thinking about it this way was that just how that somehow elevated her as being not subhuman anymore. But that like he's like, oh, she is like worthy of saving because she provided sex. And it's still kind of like this weird like objectification that's that's going on. I don't but... know. It's, it's just weird to think about. But maybe that is the type of identification intended for the young male viewers. Like maybe Mm. that is a growth stage they wanted to show in the movie. Do you know what I mean? Uh, Could you elaborate a little bit more? So I I almost want to say like it's a very juvenile way to respond to sex, which is, again, very common the the first person who like gives you sexual pleasure if it's positive and you like them it's kind of like never go away i'm going to take mm-hmm. care of you forever like you're special and i wonder if like showing that part on screen but not saying it was also meant to connect with like the young male viewers in their heads like oh this is this is how something changes or this is how a relationship changes after sex. Cause everything here is framed through like, we're not just talking about this. For example, how I as a young woman would have seen this, like Clover is coming at it from young men, primarily viewing this. I don't want to say these are written for children. They're not, but they're also not written as like adult dramas with Mm -hmm. emotional exploration. (laughs) It, so, like, you know, other broken families with this. I mean, there's obviously the Norman Bates thing with his mom, Angela, as I talked about. It's very much a broken family. Um, but one that I thought was 
don't know, kind of like interesting to get into was kind of like the evolution of this was Scream. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. sex is it's not a direct motivator for Billy in that movie, but it is the the, the byproduct of sex is which broke his family. Yeah, it's all tied up in his head. Mm-hmm. Like sex and his parents splitting and like what it means. Yes, and it's it's weird to talk about that because that movie is so meta, so it's kind of hard to like <laughs> get through all those layers. But yeah, no, like Billy does come from a broken family. His mom left, and he now kind of sees that sex equals death, not just because of what happened with his own family, but because he literally studies these slashers that uh, Clover is talking about and citing, and he he sees that trend. So he has this sexual fury already from that and he's wanting to weaponize his sex not in a um, molestation way but because he sees that as a threshold to 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 get to his ultimate goal which is to kill sydney and in his mind sex equals death so he has to first have sex with her like consensual sex Ooh, with her that's fascinating yeah so i think that is a kind of a cool update on that and especially with how and isn't I don't even know if it's so much of an update, but more because Scream was still reflecting on horror from the 80s as well. Mm-hmm. So that is kind of like a cool way to personify that and see that happen in a movie that is so referential. Yeah, it's so hard right now not to jump ahead to the victim section and <laughs> f- continue talking about this theme of post-sex death, which is disturbing on itself like not even tying it into other things yes we'll definitely get there because there's even <laughs> way more male gazy stuff with that and we'll get to that i think the last example i wanted to bring up for the psychosexual theory um and i wish i could talk more about the broken family but i don't know this character's history but it was uh, patrick bateman from american psycho um are you familiar with this movie yeah i've also read the book and i cannot think if there were mentions of his parents, but maybe there were. Yeah, I've only seen the movie once, so I don't recall. But this is also an interesting one because this was made by women as well. It was a, a, a woman director that oh. that did it. But um, there's a lot of psychosexual theory in that, but it's also kind of plays off as like he he's frustrated, but I think he's frustrated because he doesn't exactly know what to get out of sex. Mm-hmm. And because we see him watching pornography, which is... I think a very interesting just meta point in that because she talks about how slashers are so lowbrow that it's mm-hmm. just a couple steps above pornography. And she is not the only film critic I've heard to say that I actually listened to. Oh shoot. I wrote, I forgot to write down his name. Perry is his last name. Um, but I was listening to him talk about the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre that just mm. came out on Netflix. And he was kind of giving like a little history lesson on how like slashers were kind of seen as pornography. And it's like, wasn't too many steps removed. Anyways, he is kind of learning about sex through pornography. And we see that he does want to replicate those acts that he sees. And mm-hmm. we later see him again chasing a woman with a chainsaw. Whether it was real or not, it still happened in the movie. And it, all that phallic imagery is still there. It's after sex and he is just furious. And I think it's because he just doesn't like understand like how to internalize like his sexual wants and needs or whatever i don't know it's interesting yeah that is interesting and i i have i have to wonder as a woman what do teenage girls get out of these movies 
And is it something totally different or is it along the same vein? See, I wonder if the what's I mean, you, you would be a good person to ask this because you're a woman. But um, is it is it is it the final girl part of this? Is it the final girl arc that is what's appealing to, to women in these movies to like you? Like, like, who do you identify with in these movies? Oh, my gosh, that's such a great question. And I was just recalling when I was in middle school, I was obsessed with Scream and I would like play when my friends and I would have phone calls because people used to talk on the phone, <laughs> couldn't text. Um, and we would like play parts of Scream back and forth to each other. But I never saw myself in the movie. Hmm. Even as a young girl, I never saw myself as any of the characters. Interesting. See, it was more of a like spectacle. So you're kind of just there for 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 the event in the. I think I. It was entertainment, and it was shocking, and it was bloody, and it was different. Like, and I mean, maybe there was something else because being in middle school, like your brain's doing all kinds of things that you don't understand. Mm -hmm. Like maybe there was more to it. But I don't know. I think I just kind of like hooked onto it as like, what what the fuck was that? <laughs> so what about like Halloween? Do you find yourself identifying with Lori or is it the same thing as kind of just more I mean, like the I've just never, I've never identified with a final girl. Interesting. Huh. Ever. And that's why I find this so interesting to explore this idea of young men identifying with the final girl when that sounds foreign to me. Hmm. And so I question if they really do. Interesting. Okay. So you kind of just like, like the spectacle of it all. And it's not, that's, that's really fascinating. I mean, this is I a sample size of one, but. Of course. Is, and yeah. like, I think, <laughs> I think getting too deeper into it. I don't know. There's probably some like gross socio-cultural beliefs I have or like my own discomfort with sex or just, you know, like there's probably layers of things on top of horror that I don't even understand that I have. (laughs) Interesting. Well, (laughs) super cool. Okay. Well, (laughs) this is going to be a long talk, folks. I know. (laughs) So let's, let's move on to the second component that she describes, which is location or how she terms it terrible place. Um, there's many different types of this, and I feel like this is both stay the same, but there are some updates to this as well. So this is normally a house, a basement, creepy tunnel. In the case of Friday the 13th, it is the whole woods and campground. This is oftentimes considered a safe place, but becomes unsafe during a suspenseful, what she calls penetrating scene. When the final girl or victim is hiding quietly as we watch the killer chop, drill, break their way through into the house and is now a confining space, keeping the final girl from escaping. A great example is in Halloween when Laurie Strode is hiding in the closet. Um, And it's interesting because it's like, you know, at first this location is presented as a safe space, but then it quickly turns into a kind of confinement or trap. Um, And there, I think there's like several different like situations of this. And it's, it's unique to every movie because it's sometimes a character. So the opposite of this where it is like the layer or it is the the home field advantage for the villain mm-hmm. in it and a good examples are like texas chainsaw massacre wrong turn friday the 13th the last house on the left and away um these are examples of just characters by chance stumbling into a bad situation 
and they don't know it. Like with Texas Chainsaw, mm-hmm. they're stuck there because they don't have gas or, or they're trying to find their grandpa's house and they kind of they, they stumble into the the bad elements where the villains are. It's not like Halloween where Michael Myers is going into the safe place. Right. And both are scary for different reasons and in their own right. Um, but yeah, so I, I'm, I'm going to pause there. <laughs> My only thought is Yes, the the penetrative act characterization makes sense, but at the same time, that's also like how you hunt down and kill someone. And so like that's what would happen in real life, not because it's thematic, but because that's like how you would probably murder someone. Yeah. So like, y- yes, but also like remember that there's some amount of horrifying reality to slasher movies i think Mm -hmm. that we also have to remember it's not a complete fantasy like these things take places in our schools in our homes um yeah it's i don't know it also made me think of the shining is the shining a slasher Ooh, that's a tough question i would argue no that is not a slasher it maybe has elements of it but I don't know is if it's it, enough to break into that subgenre. So is it because not enough people die or because of the prestige around The Shining? It's definitely not the prestige because okay. I hate that argument. Um, <laughs> okay. But I, don't, I, I guess, hmm. I think, think it's worth us looking at as we go through this book. Is The Shining playing out the same tropes that we're reading about? Okay. Okay. Now you got me all fucked up with the shining, but uh, <laughs> I'm uh, man. That, okay. Anyways, I'm gonna have to think about that. But that is a really good example, though, of a terrible place, um, because it it's not. It's not even necessary because that's like the most neutral one. Because it's not even necessarily. It was her home, his home, mm-hmm. like as the villain, but they kind of, sort of, just like stumbled into it, and they didn't realize it was like this haunted house that was gonna make. Um, Jack Nicholson go crazy, Jack Torrance. So that that is interesting to think about um, about that. But you know, while we're kind of talking about like updates and things like that, I think something that we have definitely seen as an update of location in the terrible place, especially post nine eleven, are these movies like Hostel and Saw, where mm. it's neither the character stumbling into like 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 accidentally breaking into a house like in Texas Chainsaw, nor is it like billy from black christmas breaking to your house and he's living in your attic you don't know it mm-hmm. it's you are being kidnapped and taken to a separate location that is their terrible place and i think because like the terrible location i think that the point that she's is trying to make is that it does play as a crucial plot point and it's kind of like a character of its own uh, or an extension of the the villain or protagonist in a sense um yeah, it's interesting that you bring up post 9-11 because as soon as you started describing that, I was thinking, well, that was the real life anxiety that a lot of people had was being, um, I think that was a huge cultural topic when we were talking about Guantanamo Bay, when we were talking about torture, when mm-hmm. we were talking about like, who are we as people and what does it mean? Yeah. And 
so interesting to see that reflected in our slasher horror movies of like through the lens of like you can't really trust anything (laughs) no no you can't you can't even like trust your own homes in some of these scenarios and that is a big theme in those like home invasion movies like the strangers and hush and my nightmare (laughs) and even like the beginning of scream you know it is kind of a home invasion movie with the casey beckard segment yeah absolutely yeah Um, so yeah saying that um do we want to get into weapons i just wanted to give one last example that i really like that is it's not even an update it's just a continuation of this that we got in the 90s Mm -hmm. and that is i know what you did last summer we get that awesome scene of the 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 fisherman the hookman uh when he breaks into uh sarah michelle geller's house and she doesn't know it and she wakes up with like the haircut and uh, he writes oh, yeah. soon in makeup on, on the window uh, that is both framed in a way to where, you know, like, oh, my goodness, this is his ter- like everywhere is his terrible place. He doesn't like have a layer that he wants to bring them to. We do get the terrible place with his boat at the end of the movie. But I do love how that movie plays on both of that, that he will go to you. And at the end of the movie, you will be trapped like in the lower deck of his boat as well. So like the the terrible place is kind of just everywhere in, in that so i thought that was kind of like a cool not necessarily update but just kind of continuation of like hey we're, we're going to do both in this silly slasher movie <laughs> yeah and that makes it extra scary when mm-hmm. you know not just not only can the villain the killer come to you the terrible place can come to you yeah ha- have you seen the collector no and i'm already scared based on the title that is a that's also a really good example of terrible place. It is about this guy who is casing a house that he wants to break into because you know mm-hmm. there's like I think there's like some something of value in a safe. I think it was like a diamond or something, and he knows that the family's going out of town, so he breaks in, goes upstairs, and he's you know working on hours on cracking this safe. What he doesn't know is that the serial killer has already got into the house and is torturing the family in the basement. And, oh my god <laughs> and since and since he's been working on this and nobody knows he's up there the serial killer has booby trapped the entire house but he doesn't know that the cat burglar's there so and he hears the screams of the family so he is now trying to navigate his way through these traps in the house and save the family what and the fuck it's 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 a really awesome movie it's it's really uh grotesque because uh, the traps are gnarly but um that is a, and also a very good example of terrible place that he he came into something that is you know we see as a safe place and he literally turned it wasn't just like a serial killer running through a house he turned right. it into his own thing yeah i mean that ties in perfectly to the the household nature of these weapons So next we go into weapons. And first of all, of course, no guns. Guns have no place in slasher films, she says. And on one hand, it makes sense. Like, she says the emotional terrain of the slasher film is pre-technological, which is so interesting to think about. It really is. And it's partly because of the intimacy of the murder, which is such a strange thing to say. But it's true. Um, I mean, that's that's an accurate way to describe it. It is. And she says, uh, you know, victims sometimes use firearms, but uh, they tend to fail. Like fire alarms, elevators, doorbells, car engines. <laughs> Anything that can fail on you in a slasher will. 
And mm-hmm. so, um, <laughs> especially when someone is coming after you with knives, hammers, axes, ice picks, like you, you really have almost no defense against these things. I don't know. These are the weapons that make you feel like, oh, my, my tiny human body is so delicate. <laughs> Yeah, it does. And it's also kind of still that, I mean, what are these objects doing? I mean, like a gun is like throwing a projectile into you, but these are like, you know, because she describes these weapons as an extension of the killer and that they're almost always phallic. And what are these things trying to do? They're trying to penetrate you and, and just and wreck, almost just wreck like your body. Destroy you. Yeah. Yeah. Destroy you fully, which is kind of a terrible sex metaphor, but a metaphor some people make. But she she makes a good point, though, going back to her point about the sexual theory in that these killers, they like the movie never presents is that they want sex except for Mm -hmm. uh, American Psycho, which is kind of like an anomaly on its own. But um, that they're sexually frustrated, sexually repressed, but they substitute sex with killing. And they so like Mm -hmm. these kills are like coded as sex and, and like sexual gratification and. Um, I think that there's a good blending of like getting those points with like the the crotch scene I talked about with Stretch and Texas Chainsaw Two, um, and I think that there is kind of like a, a good like example of this that kind of like shows the reversal of this is from the Last House on the Left with the dad in the chainsaw, um, and the chainsaw is basically just like the ultimate phallic uh, thing in this because it's just like hey my penis is so great it's gas powered and he <laughs> is i mean i think that's like what it is because like what wh- what is the dad doing in that movie he is the terrible place is his own home the person that he is trying to kill raped and murdered his daughter and so it is the father figure with his you know gas powered phallic taking sure. revenge back on this you know sexual predator mm-hmm. And it's, but, and once we get to the victims, I, I am going to bring this example back up because it's interesting, but um, yeah, it's, it's even though here we're, it's, Last House of Left is so weird because it's like the parents are the killers, but they're also the heroes in that movie. But it is an extension of what the dad is doing, what everything that represents to what the guy he's killing did. Yeah. I don't have anything else to add about weapons. I'm, I'm excited to get to the victim section. Alrighty, everybody, that is going to conclude part one of this discussion on chapter one on Men, Women, and Chainsaws, Her Body Himself. Uh, thank you so much for listening. The next episode will be out in just a couple of days. Part two will be out. I'm aiming for Friday or Saturday. And in that, we will get into the victims part of this, the, the final girls, the shock element that Clover gets into. We'll also get into how sex equals death and how it's different for men and women in these movies and how it's framed differently and everything it's just so much fun stuff to get into i find this stuff fascinating i hope that you do too once again thank you for listening and thank you to horror press be sure to go check out horrorpress.com there are links in the show notes and i'm starting to put little um little tiny little mini reads up there too so be sure to go check those out and let me know any articles you write on there that you really like i would like to know what everybody's kind of like interested in and the type of things that they're into because if there's an article on there that you really like i'll see if i could maybe poke an author author or two to see if i get them on here <laughs> but um all right guys thank you so much please go check out the patreon patreon.com slash brucker horror follow me on twitter and instagram at brucker horror and i will see you guys in just a few days watch some good movies goodbye